Why her? One word. Hubble. Hubble. Oh my god. Hubble. It is. It is so Hubble. Who's Hubble? Hubble. Robert Hubble Redford in The Way We Were. Oh, I love that movie. No, I love, love, love that movie. Never saw it. Oh, oh my, my god. god. What are you, an alien? How could you not have seen The Way We Were? Check film. Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Wall podcast, covering a director's filmography, film by film. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm Brian Connolly, the other guy. All right, back again, still working our way through Francis Ford Coppola's filmography. Last time we discussed the big one, The Godfather, and now we've got not one, but two movies to talk about for you today. It's a special surprise Robert Redford double feature. What the world wants. (laughs) What the world needs right now. (laughs) We'll be talking about The Way We Were and The Great Gatsby. These are the last two films that Coppola wrote that he did not direct himself. And then uh, we usually do a wine pairing with these, but because of the COVID-19, it's hard to find a variety of Coppola wines right now that aren't the ones we've already done. So I, in my home, have been drinking the Coppola 2017 Black Label Claret, which we've already covered. But AJ, you got one that we, you found one that we haven't done yet. I'm jealous. Yeah, I have to give uh, credit for finding this to my wife, who, uh, when I told her we were doing The Great Gatsby, she went out and found the Cop- uh, Francis Coppola Sophia Blanc de Blanc effervescent white wine. Uh, it's a sparkling wine. So, you know, sort of like a champagne, very appropriate for the Great Gatsby. It comes in a, uh, a hexagonal box and it's four tiny cans. Uh, the box is pink and it's got little holes like, uh, like wine bubbles. And let's see what the message on the back is. Store and serve chilled. Okay, those are the instructions. Ah, here we go. The Sophia Blanc de Blanc's effervescent white wine bubbles over with delicate flavors of passion fruit, citrus, and honeysuckle. The Sophia mini four pack is the life of the party. Each portable pleasure comes with its own straw, serve chilled, be thrilled, sip responsibly. Uh, so yeah, I opened up the box and there was a little rectangular box, uh, smaller box in here, which I thought at first contained the secret message, but those are actually the straws. Oh, look at that, little tiny yeah, straws. That's cool, little tiny straws in a little tiny box. How does it taste? It tastes all right. Um, I've had this kind before, long before. I think I had this New Year's Eve 2008. It was the first New Year's that me and Lonnie spent together. And we drank this champagne and it gave her a really bad headache. And I don't really remember anything about it, about the wine. I remember the night. I definitely taste the citrus. I've never had honeysuckle, so I don't know what that is. It's not a very fruity wine, which I guess makes sense from the description. I, I like the fruity wines. Um, all right, it's kind of got like a tang to it. 
Hmm. Well, I will try it. Maybe I will wait and I will grab that and try to find it when we do the uh, Godfather 3. Or no, wait, New York Stories, because that's the first time that Sophia shows up, right? Yeah. Or what she might be in Peggy Sue Got Married. Oh. Is that before New York Stories? It is. Okay, yes. So I'll look into whichever one she shows up first where you know that it's her on the screen. I'm going to drink that. Yeah, I will probably have it again as well. I was also thinking Godfather 3, but uh, yeah, we'll probably have it more than once. <laughs> yeah, we might be stuck at home for the rest of our lives and at the whims of the four couple lines left. <laughs> or at least fighting over it like gasoline in a Mad Max film. <clears throat> um, <laughs> so this is an interesting episode because we're, we're just, yeah, covering the things he only wrote. And... Why, why, was, why was this the last time he was a screenwriter for it? Was it because he already was at this time moving up in the ranks, has moved up in the ranks as a filmmaker, and so he doesn't need to sell scripts anymore? And these are both scripts, I'm guessing, were worked on pre-Godfather? Uh, the Way We Were, I feel like, was definitely worked on pre-Godfather, though we'll get into that because there's a lot of speculation <laughs> on exactly how much involvement Coppola had on the way we were. But yes, at this time, post-Godfather, he's on his way up, you know, or he is there, he's at the big time. But while he was editing The Godfather, he wasn't sure that it was going to be a big hit or even a success. And so he was nervous about his career as a director, but having won an Oscar for screenwriting he knew he could still get work as a screenwriter so he asked robert evans for a project and robert evans is the head of paramount his then wife ali mcgraw really wanted to play daisy buchanan in the movie of the great gatsby so evans gave the great gatsby the copilot and he was working on that while the godfather the godfather took off and became a big hit so in interviews, he said that he wasn't able to fully enjoy the success of The Godfather because he was at home trying to get this screenplay finished. <laughs> and then after this, he has the conversation in Godfather 2 come out same year, same year as Great Gatsby, actually. And by then, he's firmly established as a writer-director, so he doesn't need to do screenplays for hire anymore. Um, but that's the story why, after making what is now considered one of the biggest, you know, greatest films ever made, there are then these two seemingly random writer for hire jobs in his filmography. So I guess before we go into talking more about all this, why don't you give us the plot in the smallest form of the way we were? All right. Should we? Talk about both these movies at the same time. Like, should you do Way We Were, and then I do Great Gatsby, and then we just kind of go jump around, or what, what? How should we do this? We can do it that way because, spoiler alert, I don't think there's a lot to talk about with the Way We Were. <laughs> Let's do that. All right. So why don't you do Way We Were, and then I'll I'll follow up with Gatsby. All right. So the Way We Were is the story of. Katie Morosky, Barbara Streisand, and Hubble Gardner, Robert Redford. Uh, it starts with them meeting uh, towards the end of World War II, and she comes to a, 
like a USO, a USO bar and Redford is at the bar in his naval uniform looking extremely handsome and dashing and he is falling asleep <laughs> and she sees him and just stops full on it's like oh my god and then the movie flashes back to when they were both in college in the mid to late 30s whenever the Spanish Civil War was I always forget the exact year she is a young activist. A um, she's like a, got socialist, Marxist leanings. So she's always protesting, and you know, being an activist, trying to be a loud voice for social causes and stuff. He is in the ROTC, and though they don't really seem like they would get along, they're both drawn to each other. He's not it's not like a she's liberal, he's conservative type story. It's more like she is very outspoken about her beliefs and he is just good looking. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's not really a lot to Hubble. He's, uh, they say a lot of time, they say several times that he's a, a wasp and that's pretty much all that he has going for him. Then the film flashes back to the end of World War II, she takes the sleepy Robert Redford home and kind of sexually assaults him. <laughs> it's an odd scene. It had to have been odd then, and it's definitely inappropriate now. She like lays, she takes off his clothes and puts him in bed, and then she takes off her clothes and gets in bed with him, and he is like so out of it. He is like mostly fully asleep. They have sex. And then he says someone else's name and she's like, oh, you didn't even know it was me. And then they wake up in bed the next morning together and they're kind of back together again. And he is still in the Navy. She's still an activist. They're trying to make their relationship work, though he and his group aren't serious about politics. She's very serious and she's kind of put off about it. And then the film goes to Hollywood. Robert Redford's character wrote a book in college that now is gonna be made into a movie. So they moved to Hollywood. He very easily becomes a successful screenwriter. <laughs> and then the Hollywood blacklist happens and that's more tension in their relationship. And then uh, she finds out that she's pregnant and they decide, you know what, let's break up anyway. And then, so they break up, and then the film flashes forward even further to the 60s, I'm guessing. And he is, they meet outside the Plaza Hotel. And it's the most famous scene of the movie, where they've run into each other again. And she's got her curly hair again. She starts out the movie with curly hair, and then it goes straight, and then curly again. And he's with his new wife, and... He asks her like to coffee and she declines and she tells him, your girl is lovely, Hubble. And then they say goodbye, they separate, and then you hear the song, The Way We Were. The end. <laughs> Good job. All right. Craig Cadsby. It feels weird describing the plot because I'm sure everyone on Earth knows the plot because we all had to read this in high school at some point of our lives. At least we used to. I don't know. If that's the case anymore, I'm very old. So maybe kids don't have to read anything in high school anymore. But uh, basically, 
you have it's nineteen twenty two, I think. That seems yeah. about right. And you're, the movie's told, told from the point of view of Nick Carraway, played by the great Sam Waterston of Law and Order. Duh, duh. But a young Sam Waterston, which is odd, but also odd that he doesn't really look that different. <laughs> so you have him as sort of this, uh, you know, this guy, and he's going to visit his cousin, his cousin Daisy, played by Mia Farrow, and he's not close really to his cousin, and she's uh, very rich, and he is not so much. But she's very rich because she married rich by marrying uh, Tom Buchanan, played by the great Bruce Dern from the even greater movie, The Burbs. And he's sort of a a jerk and uh, not quite abusive to her, but just definitely like cold and not really there for her. And a lot of that is because he's having an affair with a lady named Myrtle, played by Karen Black, who's married to a gas station owner, George Wilson, played by Scott Wilson. And all this is going on, and the neighbor of Nick is a man named Jay Gadsby, Robert Redford, who always throws these parties, like every Saturday night, these big grand parties. And one day, uh, he's invited over to Gadsby's house. Nick is invited over, and he's at this big party, and there's all these rumors as to who is Gadsby. Like, everyone has a different story of, like, who he is. He's a man shrouded in mystery. And then uh, he's beckoned to go upstairs to uh, meet Gadsby, and he thinks there must be a big mistake. And he goes and meets Gadsby, and he finds out that Gadsby just kind of stands upstairs and just watches the party from the window because he's not really interested in parties. He's just sort of like the classic lonely rich guy that money did not buy happiness, and so he just doesn't know what to do with it. So he throws parties for other people, and he just kind of hangs out in an empty room sign. Turns out that he actually, a long time ago, was deeply in love with Daisy and uh, wants Nick to bring Daisy over to his house for for lunch. And there's this whole plot revealed that they had this grand love, but he had to go off to war because he was a poor kid and he had to go off to war. And she didn't wait for him and instead went into the arms of the rich uh, Tom. And then Gatsby came back and was like, wait a minute, where is my girlfriend? And then he becomes rich. Anyways, by becoming a bootlegger and deep into the bootlegging business and dealing with some nefarious uh, mobster Chicago type people. Uh, There's a bunch of drama. There's all these relationships, you know, back and forth. Uh, Daisy falls in love again with Gatsby. He convinces her, well, you need to leave your husband, Tom. She can't do it. She can't. She just can't bring herself to do it. The affair that Bruce Dern's having with Myrtle is kind of not doing so hot. Uh, it ends in horrible tragedy. Uh, spoiler alert: uh, Myrtle gets hit by a car, thought to be driven by Gadsby. Twist: It is actually driven by Daisy. And then uh, Mr. Wilson is enraged with anger of who killed his wife, so he goes with a gun to kill Tom. Tom convinces him it was not. Uh, him, but in fact, Gatsby, he goes to shoot Gatsby in a swimming pool. Gatsby dies. Gatsby's dad shows up, played by the creepy old man from Home Alone, who is all sad and in awe that his son has his mansion. And Gatsby's buried in a funeral where nobody comes except for his father and Nick. The end. That's the Cliff's Notes version of the great Gatsby. There's, of yeah. course, themes and whatever in there that we all learned in high school. But that's the gist of it. So, whew, fun. You had it easier. Your movie was easier. There's less people. 
so less people, let's, less let's, plot. So the way we were has a it's I feel like the making of it is more interesting than the actual movie. The movie itself I liked. It was a good sort of romantic drama. It clearly is much loved by like the people who made Sex in the City and the Gilmore Girls. Not only is that movie referenced in those shows, but those shows kind of deal with these opinionated outspoken women that kind of fall in love with these sort of like dopey handsome dudes who aren't as much like all of that kind of factors in the plot of those shows. So it was kind of cool to see the movie that I heard so much about being a big fan of those two shows. Um, but I think the movie itself was kind of, it felt kind of long. It did feel long. It's not actually long, but it feels long. It feels a bit aimless. Like, okay, so the title is The Way We Were. It starts out with two characters seemingly reuniting and then goes immediately into a flashback of their younger selves. So I expected the movie to be about them younger, but that's only like 20 minutes of the movie. And then the rest of it is them trying to have a relationship in the then in the present of the movie so like okay so it's not the way it's not about the way we were it's about hey the way we are now and it's complicated yeah once and then once the movie moves to hollywood where this whole subplot this whole plot about redford being a screenwriter and getting caught up in the blacklist and of course he's not going to uh Anyway, he's not supporting the people that are standing up to Huac and Streisand is, and she has a problem that he is not going to. And really, I guess the problem is that the characters, they are who they were in college. They don't grow, and their attraction doesn't make any sense. Um, and it's not like the Redford and Streisand don't really have chemistry together, and I don't think it's any fault on them the actors but on the but on the script and on the characterizations because she cares about social justice issues and political issues but she is pretty obnoxious about it and uh, Hubble finds her interesting because of that but is not compelled to get involved with her interests and doesn't really seem to have any of his own and they continue on like that and so whenever they they, they come into conflict because of their clashing personalities i'm thinking well of course yeah it, this this whole relationship doesn't make any sense <laughs> But don't you think it's because they have an understanding of who each other is, like they respect what the other person's about, even though it frustrates them? I, I saw it as like, they understand like you're this way and I'm this way and I respect that, even though it drives me crazy. And I, I, I agree, I don't really know exactly why that would keep them together for years and years through all these difficult times and have a baby and all this stuff. But I don't know you hear about couples or you meet couples that are very, very different people and they kind of balance each other out or it's like, you're this way and I'm this way. And somehow we, the scales are balanced because we're both these different uh, people. I, I agree with that or most of it, I suppose. I feel like that, um, 
that respect or mutual admiration for their different personalities would have resulted in a uh, an interesting friendship but I, I suppose at this time it wasn't common for uh, men and women to just be friends long term so they ended up in a relationship together and yeah the most interesting things about this movie are the later things that it influenced like sex in the city which directly quotes the end of the way we were at the end of one season of Sex and the City, Mr. Big is married or has a girlfriend and Carrie decides like, well, I'm gonna let him go for now and tells him, your girl is lovely Hubble. And they're in the exact same spot in front of the Plaza Hotel in New York. And <laughs> of course the song, The Way We Were was a huge hit, uh, won the Oscar for best original song and shows up in other movies most famously for me in Naked Gun Two and a Half. <laughs> Written by uh, the great Marvin Hamlish, who did the, worked on the soundtrack for The Sting and the James Bond film The Spy Who Loved Me. And before his death, The Nutty Professor musical, which was an off-Broadway thing that never quite became a hit. <laughs> I didn't know that that thing existed. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the way we were is credited as being written by Arthur Lawrence and he's the sole credited writer on the movie. The Way We Were shows up in Coppola's filmography as a, as a, an uncredited writer and we found a few different sources, credible sources, that list Coppola as one of the screenwriters. The whole History behind this is that Arthur Lawrence wrote this specifically for Barbra Streisand as a vehicle for her. And then it kept getting reworked by other screenwriters, by 11 different screenwriters. One of them was Coppola. AFI uh, Film Database credits Coppola and cites a New Yorker review from the time that credits Coppola. And in the Wikipedia entry for The Great Gatsby, it says that Redford encouraged uh, Coppola to be hired to do the adaptation for The Great Gatsby because he liked the uh, draft Coppola had done for The Way We Were. Mm. The Way We Were is also, and I feel like here is more evidence for Coppola's involvement or more uh, reasons for Coppola's involvement is it's directed by Sidney Pollack, who had previously directed uh, This Property is Condemned. It's produced by Ray Stark, who was the producer, a producer at Seven Arts and produced This Property is Condemned. To me, it would make sense then that if this producer and director are having problems with a screenplay and it's about a relate, it's a relationship movie starring Robert Redford. Hey, we did a relationship movie starring Robert Redford, and it was written by this guy. Give it to him; he'll do a draft. And he's now an Oscar-winning screenwriter, you know. Yeah. And what's crazy is when you look at the list of other people who he wrote it; they're all like the most famous screenwriters of the time. And it's what's so funny that they came up with a movie that, to me, is so run-of-the-mill in many ways, where you have all these amazing uh, people. Like you also have. Patty Chayesky, who went on to write Network and who had just written The Hospital work on this. 
and you have uh, Dalton Trumbo, who has direct experience with actually being blacklisted. And so you have and, uh, Alvin Sargent, who is a, um, a writer, he wrote for, for Robert Redford, like Ordinary People, wrote Paper Moon, What About Bob? <laughs> Uh, and then you have uh, David Rayfield, I think that's how you say his name, who did a lot of work specifically with Sidney Pollock. So I'm guessing he was maybe the last guy brought in to like do like a polish because he wrote like a lot, if not all of the Sidney Pollock movies, either uncredited or credited. He did a lot of them. And he also worked on uh, This Property's Condemned uncredited. And you also have um, Herb... Gardner, who is a also a playwright and a writer, and he wrote I'm Not Rappaport, and he wrote uh, the movie The Play Thieves, and he wrote A Thousand Clowns, the play for that. So you have like all these great writers just giving it, it almost seemed like anyone who needed work was just like handed this, this script like past their desk for a few weeks so they can make a few thousand dollars and added this on and this on and this on. And it's just sort of like, when you have that many writers going through a thing over and over again, it, I just don't see how you can have something great at, at the end of that. With the exception of the Flintstones movie, which I think had like 12 different writers on that, like 12 different rewrites of the Flintstones movie. You look at the credits of the Flintstones, it's like, and the, the trick that I learned as a kid, and this was great, was how you know when a movie has been rewritten is whether the and is spelled out or it's just the, the symbol. So when it's the the when it says when it says the word and the name after that means that person then did their version of the script and if it's not and it's just the symbol for and then it means those are people working actually working together and so this movie had a lot of ands but it was made at the time when they didn't feel the need to credit everybody who put stuff into it they just credited the one guy yeah they're only a few years removed like less than less than a decade removed from the old hollywood system where you had writers on staff that would just show up every day and work on whatever the hell you told them to do a polish here rewrite the dialogue on this movie and they didn't get credited but they still got paid the other thing of note uh, to just throw out there is that Ray Stark is the son-in-law of Fanny Bryce, who was the subject of Funny Girl, starring Barbara Streisand. That um, uh, explains that. There, there is a part in this movie where they met. Where there is an F. Scott Fitzgerald reference of of him being a guy who went to Hollywood, a writer went to Hollywood. So I wonder if that was something Coppola added, or who added that little line about F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, hmm. And that stood out for me, of course, just because we knew we were going right into Great Gatsby after this. It also stars uh, the young James Woods, who uh, plays a communist, which I'm sure would be shocking to the now older, obnoxious on the internet, conservative uh, James Woods. And what's funny is he plays like Barbara Streisand's like commie pal. <laughs> it's funny to think there's no way in 2020 that like James Woods and Barbara Streisand would, would hang out together. <laughs> I can't think of two more opposite people politically, uh, personality-wise, that like, they don't, I think this was it. I think this is all they had. Um, but he's good. He's just a little weirdo in it, you know. But it's, it's like, it's like you get two types of James Woods roles. Either you get sort of like the 
sort of like focused uh, know-it-all, which is sort of what you get here, or you get like the crazy maniac uh, know-it-all, which you get in like other things like Casino or something where they just, they know better and they're on that. So uh, I really, it was shocking to see him here looking pretty much the same. And then you also get Lois Childs. This is her first movie. She's also in The Great Catsby playing uh, Daisy's, what, sister, aunt, friend? I don't like who. Uh, Jordan Baker, the. She plays Carol Ann, or she plays Carol Ann in this, and in The Great Gatsby, she's her person who's always around. Uh, yeah, Jordan is just uh, their friend who is supposed to be like uh, Nick Carraway's love interest. And she's most of note for being the Bond girl in Moonraker. She's the Bond girl in Moonraker. And then after that, you know, kind of forgot about her. It was interesting that she, I'm guessing Robert Redford must have really liked her because this is her first movie. And then here she is again a year later in The Great Gatsby. What a very interesting actress. She doesn't really bring much. She's very pretty. And I don't know. It just, they don't, it's, she's not very memorable in either of these movies. But clearly she had something because she kept having a career. The main, the main thing that stood out for me while watching this movie, which was a little shocking, was sort of the strange, was strangely lacking in the cinematic department. There wasn't a lot of c- cinema going on. There wasn't a lot of camera movement or interesting shots. And a lot of it just kind of felt like a play where you have people in a room, like a set, just talking, which is a complaint I had for half of Patton as well. And it's just sort of like this leftover way of making a movie where you just have people kind of on a one-sided set and they're just kind of talking. And I expected more from a Sidney Pollock movie because he has made movies that are cinematic, certainly after this and, you know, like it, you know, but like it just felt kind of flat. The filmmaking felt very flat to me. It did. That definitely didn't, it definitely didn't help since I wasn't engaged with the story. I also wasn't engaged visually. Yeah. There's not a lot going on here visually no interesting camera work, no interesting shot compositions, which is a shame uh, and perplexing because it's a period piece. So you think, well, the pretty period 30s, 40s clothing would at least be eye-catching, but it's it's filmed pretty blandly. You know, like I didn't know that this movie was a period movie um, uh, just from like clips I had seen of it. So I was kind of surprised putting it, putting it on to see that it was a period movie. And then you just kind of forget about that aside from plot points like The Blacklist. I have a question for you, a related or unrelated. So Hollywood now has a thing called The Blacklist, which is like great unmade scripts. And they, every year they're like, here's the new Blacklist of the scripts that was too good and they didn't get made and isn't that sad and they do that every year why is it called the blacklist isn't it offensive to the people that were actually blacklisted like at a time or is it a way to take take it back and be like we were once blacklisted that was a bad thing but now a blacklist is a good thing i thought that it was named after someone tony blacklist (laughs) yeah yeah it was named after tony blacklist but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I could be wrong. It may just be that, yeah, they're trying to take it back. I found that very weird because, like, it's just like, you know, when you think about, you know, Dalton Trumbo was blacklisted, you're like, oh, that's really sad. And then now uh, when you're like, so-and-so's little thing is on the blacklist, you're like, ooh, how exciting. 
And it just seems, it would be strange to me if I was like an old person who was blacklisted and then this is a thing that is celebrated unless it's supposed to be like, we're, make, we're taking this name back and we're making it a good thing. Being blacklisted is now a good thing. Okay. I just always found that very odd. Yeah, I, their website doesn't list anything about the origin of the name. So I would assume it's because these screenplays are technically being ignored by the industry, though maybe they deserve not to be. Even though, I don't know, every time, I mean, they put out a list every year. The, every time I hear that, oh, this is a blacklist movie, or like, yeah, this movie, the screenplay was on the blacklist for this year, it's always not good. <laughs> like, The Beaver uh, with Mel Gibson was a blacklist screenplay. Not a good movie. Kind of interesting idea. Not a good movie. What else? Like, Chapter 27, that movie about Mark David Chapman, uh, who killed John Lennon, mm-hmm. was a blacklist screenplay. A famously not good movie, which Jared Leto gained like all this weight for and screwed up his body. Yeah, so I'm I'm always skeptical about the blacklist as an entity. And this is the third, I think, Sidney Pollock, Robert Redford working together. Is that is that right? Was this the third thing they did together? Uh, I think so. They did. They they kept working together. They made so many movies together. They made This Property is Condemned, and then this, The Way We Were, and then Jeremiah Johnson. I forget exactly the year, but that was around this time, late 60s, early 70s. Three Days of the Condor. Um, You have uh, The Electric Horseman, um, Out of Africa, the forgotten movie Havana. (laughs) Yeah, just sort of like interesting that they they definitely, they were, like it's some of the be- the better, more well-regarded, you know, Robert Redford movies that aren't by George Roy Hill, and um, they definitely like Robert Redford's interesting, and we can get, this can maybe be a good way to go into Gatsby more, if, unless you want to say more about this. Uh, no, I'm I'm pretty much done with the way we were. Like it's it's a, a movie whose like influence is more interesting than the actual film itself. Like, or if you wanted to see the movie star personalities of Redford and Streisand at work on screen. I would not recommend this film. There's other films like Funny Girl or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid that I would tell people to see if they wanted to, you know, see a good Robert Redford movie or a good Barbara Streisand movie. But like Redford, I used to not get him. I used to not understand the appeal of him because I was just like, he's just like kind of a, Handsome white guy. Okay, Robert Redford. Like, why am I excited? Like, to me, he was like in the same boat as like a Kevin Costner or a uh, Ryan O'Neill or, you know. But it's like blonde, all American boy. You, know, like, you were popular in high school, you played football, you got everything you wanted at the end, you know. Like, but watching these movies, and I recently watched for the first time, um, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, I never seen that movie before. And then I rewatched The Sting within the last few months. Like the, he definitely has, to me, he's more like Brad Pitt, where he has this, like he's handsome, sure, and he has that thing, but he definitely has like there's something about him that like you're drawn to. And there's something going on behind 
the handsome face that's interesting, you know, that, that, that comes off in the characters and in the, and there, and like, for example, in, um, I think both of these movies, there's like a, there's an underlying kind of sadness that he brings that's there, even when he is not sad in the movie, like you can tell there's just something that he, like that he's troubled by, or there's something that's like, you know, a, a deep sadness or, or like he's charming, but like he, you can tell that he's frustrated with, like, it's a lot of like, it's what I also get from uh, Ryan Gosling, where I feel like there's a lot of internal acting going on. It's like, you just have to really look at them and look in their eyes almost. And you're like, oh, he's thinking about something or, oh, he's like, there's something else going on that's not what's being said and not what's even being like what the scene is. But if you look at the person, you're like, there's something going on that is fascinating and interesting behind this pretty face. Yeah, Redford is so like Brad Pitt and Ryan Gosling. It has just such a, a handsome face that you're drawn to that, just like how aesthetically pleasing this person looks <laughs> that you have to focus on the actual like tiny facial expressions, especially the eyes. You're right in the great Gatsby. I mean, there's plenty of other Redford moments like this, but you see his vulnerability, his uncertainty, but it's all like in the eyes and then little gestures because he is trying to be not ostentatious in his performance. He's really like living that character, but because that's then a, a more subtle type performance, you don't see it right away. Um, it's not like a very showy performance. So the first thing you see is just this very good looking man in a very good looking suit, you know, being, being very charming. And then when you see like his eyes, there's a vulnerability, uh, you know, a, a hesitation there. Which is perfect for Gatsby because that's exactly that character. Like from, you know, sitting at Nick at his house, he looks from afar and be like, oh, this guy seems like he's a great rich guy with these parties and how exciting. And even when you're downstairs and you kind of see him from afar at the house, you're like, oh, this guy's looking so sharp and he's got everything. And then it's like once you're in the same room with him, you're like, oh, this guy's really sad. There's something sad about him. Even though he's being very nice to me, I can tell there's, like I loved sort of like, I really liked, I think that some of the best acting from Redford in this movie is in the scene when he's excited for Daisy to come over for this brunch, but also incredibly nervous, but doesn't want to show it. And he's like making sure everything's perfect. He's getting the lawn mowed. He's getting all these flowers delivered that are her favorite thing. And he's brought his own tea set over. And, and Nick's trying to interact with him like a normal person. And you can tell that Gatsby is in another place in his head, but doesn't want to show that he's nervous or whatever. So he's still trying to play it kind of cool, but you can tell that he is like totally tense and a wreck inside <laughs> waiting for this. For yeah, days. that's maybe Redford's best scene. It's a scene where you see the most vulnerability. You see that the persona of Jay Gatsby is just a facade and you're actually with uh, Jay, Jay Gats, you know, yeah. the person that he actually is. I feel though that there aren't enough moments like that in the movie. So I don't think he was a, a great, great Gatsby. I don't think he, though I do think he's a good great Gatsby. <laughs> because to me, uh, and I'm a big fan of, of the book, uh, that the casting, when you cast 
The Great Gatsby, uh, Hollywood always goes for the, well, the two times that's been made in a major adaptation. They go for the obvious choice, like, oh, the this guy that throws all these big parties, he's he's at the head of this, uh, you know, glamorous affair. Well, it'd be Robert Redford. It would be Leonardo DiCaprio. But the whole point is that uh, he's not that person. He's this uh, insecure, naive, kind of pathetic person. And I don't really feel that from Redford. I did watch the Boz Lerman Great Gatsby uh, right after this. And DiCaprio does that. He pulls that off okay, but it's a big jarring switch when he goes between the two personalities. Um, but yeah, I didn't really get a whole lot of that from Redford's Gatsby. So it's interesting that Coppola wrote this while editing The uh, Godfather because it definitely has the similar that I can see was like, man, this guy knows how to write like a long party scene where there's a bunch of characters hanging out at this party. <laughs> Just like the beginning, the big wedding sequence in, uh, in The Godfather that starts the God, like the first 40 minutes or whatever, The Godfather. And then yeah. like, it, like that was like, he was really good at that. <laughs> yeah, the party scenes are long. There's a lot going on in them. And uh, I mean, they're well directed to capture by Jack Clayton to capture all of the uh, action and the little dialogue. And Coppola made sure to get in like each random person gets like one line of dialogue that talks up great, uh, the great Gatsby. Um, but I noticed while watching this movie, like, gosh, this is a lot of scenes, long scenes of people just talking in rooms, which is what I happen to notice about The Godfather that you don't think about. Yeah. Godfather is a lot of long scenes of people just talking in rooms or talking outside, but there's not a lot of action going on, but it's a lot of long dialogue, but it's interesting and it, it's compelling and you're caught up into it. Um, and that's what I felt in this version of The Great Gatsby. Yeah, this, this movie is two and a half hours long and I'm, it's not boring. And unlike the way we were, I think it's a very good looking movie. It has this great kind of like, everything's sort of like sparkly, glistening with dew sort of look to it. It has this sort of dreamy look. There's all these amazing shots of like the sunset over the water. Um, like it just, it's a really, and like it really does, I feel, put you in the period, not just the uh, soundtrack by Nelson Riddle. Is that, it? Is that the name, I think? Uh, yes, Nelson Riddle, uh, Academy Award uh, winner for this, this score. And then of course they use a lot of like songs from the, from the era and it just like the costumes are great. And it just, I feel like it really, what's interesting about this movie is that it has like all these great actors from the seventies, all these new Hollywood people like Bruce Dern, you know, like Karen Black, um, like Scott Wilson, but they're in this like movie, this story that, you know, is an older story that we all know about, like this book that was written back like, you know, decades and decades before. And so like, even though, and the director of this movie, like Jack Clayton is nothing special, really. Like he didn't really, he only did a few, a small handful of movies. And the only other one that I remember 
was Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is another adaptation of a book. He also directed, I believe, what, um, what Lonnie looked up while we were watching this movie, is that he was very selective of his films as a director, as a movie director, and he would only direct like prestigious literary adaptations. It's like he also directed The Innocents, which is based on the Henry James uh, uh, story, The Turn of the Screw. Uh, He also directed The Pumpkin Eater, and then of course, Something Wicked This Way Comes. So he he didn't need need the money. Yeah, I suppose he didn't need the money because it's a it's a very slim filmography, and <laughs> yeah, like he was a producer. He produced like he was associate producer and did like uh, Beat the Devil and Moulin Rouge, the nineteen fifty two version, Moby Dick, uh, you know, Sailor Beware, a few a few things, but yeah, very selective with his movies. But this movie, I think, is incredibly well directed. And like I was saying, it's like it's it's the, the filmmaking itself feels in its way very classic. It doesn't feel the filmmaking is not edgy. It's just like a really good, solid movie. But you have these these more wild actors, like the type of people that you would not put in a movie, even in the early '60s, in a movie like this. Like 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 Bruce Dern and Karen Black are true weirdos. Like they are weird weird people, weird actors. And so them being put in this more traditional sort of moving story adds sort of like an interesting element to it because, because there's, there's such unique people unlike any type of actors that you've seen before. Yeah, um, I think Bruce Dern is the best thing about this movie. Great. Yeah, he, um, I mean, he has an incredibly distinctive voice and incredibly distinctive face. And Tom Buchanan is not a very interesting character. He's just a straight up villain um, who's so like plainly bad, like cheating on his cheating on his wife, mistreating his wife and his mistress. And then he uh, is also a racist, uh, always going on about like, well, but if this happens, then next thing you know, black and white are going to be intermarrying. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned he beats. He beats Myrtle. He breaks her nose. It's just a straight up mean guy. So there's not a lot going on there in terms of dimensions. But Bruce Dern, uh, just through his skill as an actor, his natural talent and his peculiar charisma makes his character very interesting. And the way he gets at Gatsby once he's caught on that Gatsby is in love with Daisy and there's probably something going on with them he gets in these digs at Gatsby that are very underplayed. So Gatsby got all his money from uh, bootlegging because it's during the 20s, during Prohibition, and Gatsby partnered up with Meyer Wolfsheim, who is based on um, Arnold Rothstein, you know, from Boardwalk Empire. Uh, And so uh, he owns drugstores and out of those drugstores is where he sells the uh, illegal illegal liquor. And uh, at one point, when they all decide to go into town, for no good reason, it's the worst trip into town ever. <laughs> They're all going into town, and uh, 
Tom Buchanan wants to take Gatsby's big yellow car. I don't know why, just to get in, a, get under Gatsby's nerves. And he's like, you take my car. And Gatsby says, oh, no, my car, you know, it's almost out of gas. And Gatsby, or I'm sorry. And Tom says, oh, well, we'll just stop at a drugstore if we need more gas. You can get anything at a drugstore these days. You should know that. <laughs> like very subtly, he doesn't hit it, but you know that that is meant to be an insult to Gatsby. And yeah, and that's just the way Bruce Stern plays it. And it's, uh, it's, it's great, very effective. The other actor who's really good in this is Scott Wilson, who I love. He's great. And I haven't seen this movie since, gosh, high school. So I didn't really, I didn't know who Scott Wilson was at the time. And since then, I've grown quite a appreciation for him. Um, people might know him as like one of the old guys from The Walking Dead, which, you know, is sad. But he is really good. He was in um, Exorcist 3. He's great in that. He's in the uh, Ninth Configuration, which is great. And then he, the one that really, uh, him on the map was um, uh, in Cold Blood with Robert Blake, and he's really good. He's one of the two, uh, one of the two main characters in that, and that's sort of like the movie on the map. But he's got like he's so there's something always so sad and sympathetic about him in every movie, and especially in this as the kind of hard times um, gas station owner slash like mechanic guy or whatever who just seems totally oblivious that his wife is cheating on him. And you feel instantly so bad for him. And like, it definitely is intentional. Like, cause when, when uh, Tom brings Nick to introduce him to like his hot mistress, he brings him to the gas station and introduces to her husband. And then like, it's just like, yeah, and the wife, the one with me. And you're just sort of like, Oh, and like the look in Sam Watterson's face is sort of like a, Oh no, this poor guy, like, this is terrible. It like, oh, it's just so sad. And he just, he plays, Scott Wilson always plays like really good sort of like damaged, simple characters, like people that are, you know, like salt of the earth, like kind of not quite educated enough, except for Walking Dead where he plays a, a veterinarian, but like, but, but nevertheless still like kind of a simple country guy or whatever. Uh, and then here he's very, he's all very good at that too, you know, and just like when he breaks at the end, uh, it's kind of like this whole thing where he kind of caught on to his wife cheating on him that she found this diamond leash for a dog that he didn't own. And then she, then he really wants to get uh, Tom's car. He's like, give me that car, please. And I can have the money to move to the West coast. And he just seems so desperate and sad. And then within 24 hours, his wife is killed. And then he just goes out to murder uh, whoever was responsible. And it's just that I feel it's like such a good little performance in this movie. And then you also have Edward Herman, a young Edward Herman. And he's in it as the guy who just moves into Gatsby's house without Gatsby knowing. And Gatsby's like, oh yeah, this guy lives with me. I didn't know that for a few weeks, but here he is. And he makes him play the piano for him. And it's sort of the classic uh, tying back in, I guess, with, with Gilmore Girls again, because he was the, you know, the elder Gilmore in the Gilmore Girls. And um, he always plays these types of characters. Like, I think it's the way he looks and the way he talks. He only plays sort of like high society guys. <laughs> Except for in The Lost Boys. Even though he's the more educated person in The Lost Boys, he plays like the head vampire. But he's the leader of the vampires. Yeah. But he's still the leader. And it's just funny that like he could never... 
like Edward Herman could never play like a homeless man in the movie. Like he could never pull off <laughs> on his luck, like moths flying out of his pocket sort of guy. He just has that kind of like hoity-toity upper crust, just the way yeah. he walks. It's just like he can only play that kind of role. I think that Sam Waterston being cast as Nick Carraway is perfect. He is, uh, I mean, he's just the narrator. He doesn't really have an effect on events. He is the go-between between Gatsby and Daisy, but they both also knew the Jordan Baker character, so she could have been, you know, the go-between. But um, Sam Waterston has an incredibly distinct lyrical voice, so it's perfect that he does all of this narration, because the book is first-person narration and a lot of that is used in this in this movie and there's it's an effective use of voiceover there's not too much of it it goes away for long stretches and then comes back at the right times and there are certain ways just the way that sam waterson speaks and if his back is turned i i got uh confused as to whether he was uh narrating or just speaking out loud. His narration feels very like connected to the narrative of the movie. It doesn't feel like someone looking back wistfully on this crazy, odd thing that happened to them once a long time ago, which is what um, Tobey Maguire does for the Boslerm and Gatsby and just feels annoying. Is there anything else Coppola wise that you know about this. I know that he was not the first person to work on this. That he, just like with Way We Were, picked up the script from I think Truman Capote was one of the main one of the people who was working on it. Yeah, and Truman Capote. I know that Robert Evans didn't like that version. Because in Capote's version, Nick Carraway was was gay. I, I mean, that wasn't the only reason why Robert Evans didn't like the version. Also, it doesn't really do anything for Nick Carraway's character one way or the other. I know that Coppola, when he was adapting the screenplay, realized that there aren't a lot of scenes between Daisy and Gatsby in the book. So he had to invent a lot of the scenes of them together. And he wrote a long, like, nine-page scene of them having a night together and talking about their past. And that's where you learn about Gatsby's past and that he's actually Jay Gats and, you know, was a poor man in love with this rich woman. And that long scene uh, in the screenplay was taken and then cut up. And so it's in the movie, but not all together. It's in a, a bunch of different scenes and Coppola felt that his version of the screenplay you know wasn't what made it onto screen though it it wasn't a case of like it being rewritten it was just not presented the way he imagined in his head and now as a full-on movie director not just a screenwriter for hire I imagine it was like irksome to write a scene and imagine it a certain way and then you have to give it away, and then the director does something totally different with it. What did you think of the 
ending of the film of the actual like final scene remind me what it was (laughs) (laughs) what's the last shot i don't remember so the big because they have the funeral he then he runs into them again at the train station or right like he runs into tom like nick runs into tom and daisy at the train station Mm -hmm. it's just it's uh just nick walking through Gatsby's house. Walking through the empty house, which is how the movie begins. The movie begins with shots of the empty house and you hear like the faint whispers of what was once, you know, there, like sound of the party over this empty house. So it's yeah, him in the house. And then is that the end? My can of sparkling white wine just uh bubbled over. Okay, it's uh it's okay. I don't remember how the book ends. I have no recollection of what the end. The book is. ends more or less the same way with Nick Carraway, yeah, walking through the house and giving his narration, which if you've uh, had read the book recently, um, the final lines of the book are pretty important and pretty uh, powerful and affecting. And those lines are not in, are not in the uh, final scene of the movie, so the, the book ends with Nick Carraway saying, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgiastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning, there's a long, like, uh, a long dash. So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. It's, it's great, it's great prose. Because in the movie, it ends with him talking about the green light. And I think yeah, that's he says, it, right? He just says, he would always remember that green light. Yeah, it says then, he believed in the green light. He didn't, uh, but he, he didn't know that it was already behind him. And that's it. And so I was expecting, like, well, but where's the rest of it? And then it doesn't just roll credits, like, up from the bottom in a scroll. It cuts to a scene of, like, people leaving on a boat with this really super peppy the jazzy music, which to me just ruined the tone that we had just ha- had with, uh, with, you know, with Nick lamenting the loss of his friend. Uh, I didn't like it when I uh, saw that in class in junior, uh, junior English in high school. I didn't like it when I saw it a week ago. How how does the uh, Spaz Lerman one end? <laughs> it ends with the full the full narration. Uh, what I just read poorly. Uh, apologies. Uh, and then with uh, the camera moving by itself through Gatsby's house and then towards uh, the dock, and then you see the ghost of Leonardo DiCaprio standing by, uh, looking at the green light. <laughs> He's part of the force now. Yeah. So I never saw the Baz Luhrmann uh, version because I always thought it was weird that out of all directors, he'd be the one making that because it's such a 
subtle character driven story <laughs> about I mean, you know, internal feelings and things. And I mean, oh man, he makes it super visual. Like, and it's so the symbolism in the Gat in Gatsby is so obvious that I can see why it's taught in high schools. Yeah, the the eyes on the billboard watching the all-seeing eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg in the Valley of Ashes, which is something that could only exist in a book. Um, I I love this book, but the one part of it that screams this is from a book is the Valley of Ashes, where between uh, vibrant Manhattan and the palatial estates of the rich is this desolate, desolate wasteland where all the ashes of the chimney chimneys from everywhere collect. And it's totally like desert like, and there's just the one gas station run by the gas station attendant and his wife. It just, it, it's hard to imagine and seeing it on film. It's uh, I mean, it's visually striking because there's a lot of interesting stuff to be done with a desolate wasteland with a billboard of eyes that are meant to uh, advertise an eye doctor. The Baz Luhrmann movie really hits the symbolism like hard. So I could see it being it being shown in in high schools because it's just like right there reemphasizing everything that the teacher is probably trying to get across. <laughs> Did you like the Baz Luhrmann version? I liked it okay. I had a lot of problems with it. The biggest problem is that it's told it, it almost like Don Juan DeMarco style where uh, Toby Maguire is in a sanatorium recovering from malaise or whatever the hell telling his uh, psychiatrist the story of the great Gatsby and the psychiatrist is like you should write it all down. And so he's writing down the story. And as he's writing down the story, flashback to the plot of The Great Gatsby. And then occasionally it breaks into, well, now he's being served breakfast by the psychiatrist's wife, presumably, as he's going on telling the story. And it's like, what, what the fuck is this? What, what is happening? Why is this? Why is this here? It's so stylized that it's ridiculous. And that allows me to be okay with all of the ridiculous stuff like the super super Boz Lerman <laughs> Boz Lerman-esque party scenes where people are not only doing the Charleston but like twerking to hip-hop music <laughs> and it's like okay fine and DiCaprio is he, he's a good Gatsby though like I mentioned before he pulls off like the confident facade of Gatsby and the vulnerable actual person of Gats in strong opposition. And he just switches from like low to high between them. And it meshes with the movie because it's so stylized. But if it were more like this 1974 version meant to be a straightforward adaptation, it totally wouldn't work. What's interesting uh, too with this episode of talking about Coppola being an uncredited screenwriter for where we were, that's basically what F. Scott Fitzgerald was when he decided to go to Hollywood and join, you know, the ranks of depressed, drink yourself to death <laughs> screenwriters, where he was there for years 
And he didn't really make anything that remarkable. He just did a lot of like uncredited work movies and then died at the age of 44. Um, okay, he has maybe one of the most depressing IMDb pages. Like it's F. Scott Fitzgerald. Like he wrote movies? What? I didn't know he wrote movies. Look at his IMDb page and it's a whole bunch of, huh? What? It's a lot of like uncredited, uncredited. It's it's sad. It's sad to think that like even back then, like, and this is the same story you hear from screenwriters now and it always has been. It's like, yes, we write the movies. You can't have a movie without us. We are treated poorly than any other, more poorly than any other role within the system of making a movie. Like we are at the very bottom. Why is that? Who knows? Like writers are like the most respected person in like theater. And certainly like in literature, you know, like if you write a book, people are like, ooh, ah, that's exciting. But if you write a movie, you're just like, oh, you're that schmuck that like wrote a screenplay. Like not even F. Scott Fitzgerald can get a good movie made. Like not even him. (laughs) And like that also was the same with, I think, uh, I think Faulkner was another one who went to Hollywood and failed. Yeah, the the John Mahoney character in Barton Fink is supposed to be Faulkner, I believe. A famous author who is a failing, failing screenwriter. And it's just sad to think that even like in the 20s, 30s, like a well-respected writer, that even in his time was like, The Great Gatsby, I believe, was liked when it came out, right? It wasn't like later on that people thought it was good. And even he is failing in Hollywood just can't get a good thing made because Hollywood just would rather make some crap or just have him rewrite a thing and boss him around. And then he didn't even live to be 45. (laughs) Yeah. Gosh, then there's that. It's very sad. Um, And you know, that could have been Coppola. Coppola, if he hadn't made the Godfather, he could have made a Finnegan's Wake and the rain people with like, Oh, this is like the kind of thing I want to do. And then just write screenplays, write screenplays, and then we wouldn't have cared about him as much, perhaps, if he was just a guy hired to rewrite things and write things for other people. Um, yeah, no, totally. And something that if, if you like really delve into studying the film business, you'll find out that there are screenwriters, professional screenwriters, that make their living selling, writing movies that do not have a single on-screen credit. <laughs> They've like, they wrote a script and sold it, and then it got reworked into something else, and their name got taken off, or they got hired to rewrite something, it got their money, and then someone else rewrote it, and so they don't have a screenwriting credit. My, um, my screenwriting professor, who at the time when she was, when she was teaching me back in way and back in the long long ago of like 2004 um was a professional screenwriter she made her living writing screenplays but at the time did not have a credit on imdb and now she does have um have a at least a few on there it's a tough tough uh, world out there for screenwriters and for writers in general and for seemingly no reason <laughs> there's no reason for it but Hollywood loves to just chew up and shit out a goddamn screenwriter. Um, it's a sad, it's a sad thing. Um, that's why Tyler Perry's smart. He still writes a lot of plays. So like he can be a, he can be a good playwright. It doesn't, well, he's also smart that he directs his own movies too. So really that's the key. You have to be Coppola. You can be a screenwriter for a while, 
But ultimately you have to be the filmmaker, you have to be the director, or else you will never really be satisfied with your career in life. Like, the only, like if you're just a screenwriter, you're probably one of the saddest people. If you, like what's great is like Austin has, so we have our, you know, South by Southwest and we have our fantastic fest. We have these big festivals, but then there's also the lesser known Austin Film Festival, which is the writer's festival is how they advertise it. But whenever you go to any of the, and they always bring great writers out, like all these amazing people like come out and talk about the movies, but all the Q and A's are the same. They, there's always the part where they get really sad and bitter and talk about what the director fucked up and what they changed and what, what the, their vision didn't quite make it and someone else rewrote a thing or, and they always come out just kind of like 100% dissatisfied with the finished product. That's the, that's the sad life of a screenwriter. Yeah, I've, uh, I've attended the Austin Film Festival a few times and have submitted things to them a few times. Uh, the panels are always, yes, uh, amazing. And uh, that's another place where you learn the, like, for lack of a better word, or maybe it's accurate, the like harsh realities of the filmmaking business. I'm excited about the next episode because it's the conversations. We're going back into and just sticking with couple of the filmmaker for quite some time. And then the only time it's going to switch again is in the late nineties when we get Coppola, the editor of somebody else's movie, which is an odd thing, but we're, we're far away from that. So we don't need to talk about that now, but yeah. Um, yeah. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I've only seen it once before. I, I loved it when I saw it. So I'm excited to watch it again. Um, and it's exciting that this it's a, a passion project for Coppola. This is one of the movies after he got his big deal with Seven Arts, after You're a Big Boy Now. The next thing he was going to make was The Conversation, and then it kept getting put off and put off, but now he finally gets to make it after making The Godfather, biggest movie of 1972. Now he can make the movie he wants to make. And And he's sort of like starting to now with with this movie coming up and we talk about this more next episode is like he's living the dream that all people say they want to do which is you make a movie for them and then you make a movie for yourself like you just make sure to always go back to whatever weird little thing you'd rather be doing than the big thing though coppola has been very good so far but making a very very good big thing as well uh and so the conversation in, in a way similar to the rain people where it's like you made your big Finnegan's wake and now you can make your little movie and then now you can make the Godfather and now you can make this weird little thing, like a little more slightly experimental again. And I'm very, I haven't watched this movie in gosh, since college, like a long, I'm old. So that was a long time ago. Uh, (laughs) I'm excited to get into the conversation. If anybody is following along with us, if anybody's, uh, listening to this within the time frame that we recorded it, it is available on Amazon Prime right now, and that's how I'm going to watch it in this uh, COVID can't leave the house world since I can't go to a, a library or to be don't have a video store to go to right now. So it's it's uh, Amazon Prime. It is so watch it and then tune in next week for the conversation. Let's watch it. You won't regret it. We're looking forward to this episode. We're on social media. Uh, Twitter at the Director's Wall. Email us, directorswall at gmail.com. Please rate and review and subscribe to us on iTunes. We should be on Google Play now, Stitcher Radio. Thanks for listening and 
we'll all uh, put on our headsets for next time and listen in to the conversation. And then the music comes in. Memories. Oh my God, it's so good. <sighs> like the corners of my mind. Misty, Misty water-colored memories of the way we were. Let me do my favorite part. Can it be? Oh, yes. <laughs> Can it be that it was all so simple then? Or has time rewritten every line? If we had the chance to do it all again, tell me, would we? Could we?